All right. I think I'm working now. <clears throat> okay, we are in Genesis chapter 43, which is the story of the second visit of Joseph's brothers to Egypt. And uh, last week we were kind of in the middle of the chapter. We were looking at... Uh, we're working, looking at verses about verses 16 through about 25 or so last week, and uh, today uh, we're going to pick it up with verse 26 and, and look down through the end of the chapter. So, so by way of review, uh, look back at those verses that we looked at last week, verses 16 through 25, and uh, see what you can recall that we talked about last week or see what things you see in there that we should have talked about that we didn't. I threw that in for your sake, Jim. <laughs> now I'm going to have to explain all that to Robert. <laughs> he probably knows you well enough to know. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that that, that kind of leads us into some things we're going to talk about today too. So that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He had him ready to ready to release him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really, it would be nice to have that on talking about paperwork. <laughs> it would be nice to have that in writing, wouldn't it? Yeah. What else? You mentioned the thing that was just kind of fun about the possibility of Joseph had this uh, person in his household who could speak Hebrew. Uh, yeah, yeah. Where did he get this guy? Where did he know? Yeah, yeah. And I, your idea that he possibly went and redeemed this guy from the slave market was fun to think about. It is fun, isn't it? And that, yeah. that would be right in line with his character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course, yeah. Think yeah, we have no, we have no real idea, but, but uh, I can, I can sure see Joseph doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
We talked a lot last week too about, or talked some last week about the the issue of knowledge. Who knows what? Do you remember anything from that that sticks out to you? <clears throat> You're all. Oh, go ahead. You have the knowledge. You have you have the power, and the people that don't have the knowledge have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. In the, in this situation. Joseph was able to exercise a lot of self-control in revealing the, the little bit of knowledge a little, uh, at a time, mm-hmm, a bit mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. and his brothers had no knowledge of what was going on. Yeah. And the connection he made between us and God, the God knows everything, and we our knowledge is, is limited, but yet we become arrogant and think we know. We yeah. try to tell God how to do things, and we know better. And he shouldn't have done it that way. You know, those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. This this whole story is you know, see what Alfred Hitchcock is just everything is the opposite of what it's <laughs> Well, I'm not a connoisseur of Alfred Hitchcock, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> it's just, yeah, everything is bad is actually good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 really. Yeah. And and that's a real lesson for us when you know in our lives because we oftentimes look at the good things in our lives, things we think are good, really are destructive, and the things that we think are destructive oftentimes are God's gracious salvation in our lives. So so it really is instructive. Well, let's go on. Let's pick it up then in in uh, verse uh, twenty six and read down through verse. 34 says when Joseph came home they brought into the house to him the present which was in their hand and they bowed to the ground before him then he asked them about their welfare and said is your old father well of whom you spoke is is he still alive they said your servant our father is well he is still alive They bowed down in homage. As he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered the chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and he controlled himself and said, serve the meal. So they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. He took portions from, uh, to them from his own table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Well, uh, last week or last couple of weeks or so, I've mentioned the fact that at this point now, with the second arrival of the brothers in Egypt, 
everything that unfolds is pretty much according to Joseph's very meticulously, very carefully thought out plan. On their first arrival uh, in Egypt, of course, to some degree, uh, you know, Joseph appears not to be completely ready for it. And so he kind of makes plans and then he kind of changes plans. So he's forming his plan kind of on the fly with the arrival of his brothers the first time. But with the arrival of his brothers the second time in Egypt, he's obviously very ready for them. And he has a very carefully thought out plan and everything he's doing is according to that plan. But but I don't think we should draw the wrong conclusion from that. We're going to see Joseph acting in ways towards his brothers uh, now in this passage today. Uh, We're going to see him acting in ways that are very magnanimous, very gracious. Uh, He's being very kind to them. Uh, He's extending a, a great deal of of affection and love towards them. Of course, he's doing it in somewhat of a concealed fashion. He has to in order to maintain his cover, so to speak. But but I think it would be a mistake for us to think that that this magnanimity and this graciousness of Joseph, even though it's according to plan, I think it would be a mistake for us to think that it's insincere. I think it's pretty clear that Joseph feels very strongly about his brothers and he feels very strongly about what's going on. So, so though his actions are well thought out, they are not calculated. They are not insincere. This is really how Joseph feels about his brothers, which is, of course, uh, one of the remarkable things about the story. So, as the story goes forward then at this point... Uh, the uh, the brothers have been waiting for Joseph to come to the house. They've heard they they've been brought to the house as we saw in last week's lesson, and then they are waiting for Joseph to arrive at the house for the noon meal, which turns out to be a great feast. And as they are waiting, they're preparing this present that they brought from home uh, to present to Joseph. And then uh, when he comes in verse 26, when Joseph does come home for the noon meal. It says they brought into the house to him the present which was in their hand. And then they bowed before him and they had this little discussion about the welfare of the uh, of, of the family. And then he bowed, they bowed before him again. Well, one of the things that catches my attention, maybe catches your attention, too, as we're going through this story is that four times in this chapter, this present or this gift is mentioned uh, that uh, Jacob instructed the brothers to take with them to Egypt on the, for this second visit. Uh, early in the chapter, Jacob, when, when they were discussing going to Egypt and, and the peril that was involved in that trip to Egypt, Jacob said, you take a, you take a gift. And he uh, you take a gift of the best products of the land. And then several things were listed there. Pistachio nuts and almonds and honey and, and uh, what, myrrh. So several things that were listed there. Products of the land that were taken. And, uh, and so he instructs them to do that. Then a little bit later as they're preparing to leave, we are told that they assembled and took, to get, took with them this present. Now we get there to Egypt and the present is brought up again in the verse we looked at last week, that they prepared the present for Joseph's arrival at the house. And now finally, again, for the fourth time, the present is mentioned. 
when it says that they brought the present in and they gave it to Joseph. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes the way Scripture tells stories, the way it tells narratives, and the things it chooses to tell us and the things it chooses not to tell us uh, sometimes pique my interest. Like we talked about a couple things last week in the narrative last week, the comment about the donkeys and the comment about being right at the door are little flags that, that, are, that tell us something. But, but this thing about the present is just kind of puzzling to me. Now, I understand, I understand the purpose of the present. I'm sure you do, too. You understand the reason for the present. That's not puzzling to me. What's puzzling to me is the present is mentioned four different times. It's mentioned four specific times right up to the point where they give the present to Joseph. Right? Then what do we learn about the present? It's not mentioned again. It's not mentioned again. <laughs> it just disappears into the ether world or something. You know, there's no mention of the present. We're, we're not even told how Joseph receives the present. We're not told how it affects him or how it influences him, if it does influence him at all. You know? And I find that kind of interesting. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but when Jacob first instructed them to put together a present to take to Egypt, what did he tell them? To, what did he tell them? You must go and take this present. Okay, and how did he describe the present? Okay, the best products of the land, and how else? Small. Small. Little, okay. So Jacob says, just take this little present, okay? Now, I don't mean to quibble with Jacob here, uh, but I don't think this was a little present, okay? I don't think this was a little present. I think he was being perhaps a little... Uh, a little humble there when he was saying that. But when you think about it, first of all, we find out that that once they get to the house and they're waiting for Joseph, what do they spend their time doing? Preparing the present. present. How long does it take to prepare a little present? You know, if you've got a little thing with some nuts and some... Yeah, a little gift basket doesn't take a lot of preparation, okay? But they spent some time while they're waiting for Joseph preparing this present. Okay. Okay. Uh, but I was, and we'll get on that in just a minute because that kind of carries on this theme that Mike brought up a few minutes ago, and so that that is relevant. But, but, but so there's some other reasons I don't think it was a small present, and and one is to whom are they giving this present? Okay, yeah, they're giving this, to this, they're giving this present to the great Zaphonath Paneah, this great uh, vizier of Egypt, this great second man, most powerful man in Egypt, maybe perhaps in all of the world. So, so when you bring a present and you want to influence this guy who is extremely powerful and extremely rich, you don't bring him a trinket from Walmart, right? You bring something significant, something that gets his attention. All right. Something where he goes, oh, that's, you know, at least he goes, oh, that's cool. You know, he may not be blown away. He's pretty rich. So, you know, he's Bill Gates category here. So it's going to be pretty hard to give him anything that, that he'll think like he's made a made a haul on. But you at least want to bring something that gets his attention. OK. Now, why else would they be inclined to bring something really significant? Pardon? A couple of people spoke at once here. What was the first? I said just for hoping to influence 
Okay, and somebody else said they need a favor. They need a, they, they, what they're actually they need more than a favor. They need their lives. Their lives are on the line. Okay, if your life is on the line with a guy and you're hoping to influence him by bringing a present, are you going to bring a little trifling present? <laughs> you're going to bring something of significance. Okay, so. So I expect that though Jacob just initially said, take a little this and a little that, uh, I, I'm pretty suspicious. Uh, I expect that they actually probably bought, brought a present of significant uh, size and, and, and a fairly impressive present. Okay. There, there also probably wasn't a whole lot of the little this and a little that where they were coming from. I noticed most of the things that he gets was food. Yes. Yeah, it was. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So that was valuable stuff. Yes, that's true. Well, you would think so. Yeah, you, that that they weren't spies, and also that they had no reason to steal things, uh, which is ultimately what they're going to be charged with uh, in next week's lesson. But, but so this fascinates me that that the Holy Spirit makes a point out of pointing out to us this present. And that it's brought, and that it's prepared, and that it's and then it, then it's brought in, and it's given to, and then it just disappears. Now, why does why does that happen? Why does the why is the present not discussed anymore in the narrative? That was my reaction. <laughs> that was my reaction. But I thought, well, as you go forward in the narrative. Everything else is more important, right? As you go forward in the narrative, Joseph's uh, treatment of his brothers, his magnanimity, his generosity, his affection, his emotions, all of that becomes the story, right? So really the present, which seemed to be pretty significant in the lead up to this encounter, just kind of fades off into nowhere because it really in the grand total of things, really isn't all that significant. Well, if you look at things in terms of a metaphor, which uh, in our family we like to do that sometimes, the gift, bringing it to the Lord for man is nothing. Yeah, yeah. That means to put together. Uh, That's, you know, uh, that's what I concluded, is that, is that, as we look at this gift that he brings, it's, a, it's representative of the things we bring to the Lord. And we, we bring things to God because they matter to us and because they're important to us. And dare I say sometimes because we want to influence him. Because our lives are dependent on him. And so we bring our gifts to the Lord. I don't want to suggest by what we're saying here that those gifts are unimportant to the Lord. I don't think for a moment anything that we give to the Lord that he regards as small or insignificant. But what I would suggest is that when we compare what we give to God in comparison to what he gives to us, our gifts just fade into insignificance, don't they? When we consider the magnanimity and the grace and the goodness and the love and the passion of God, which He gives to us. The gifts that we bring to Him, they just kind of fade into insignificance. And again, I don't believe that they are insignificant to God. I don't believe for a moment that God regards them lightly. 
But I think in our perspective, what we realize when we truly encounter the grace and the goodness of God is we realize how small our gifts are. Well, I think Joseph probably looked at that gift and he realized they brought their best. Yeah. He knew. Yeah. He recognized what that was. Yeah. And once he realized that they brought the best, he made note of that. Yeah. Then he didn't need to get it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's kind of the same way with us with God. He's waiting for us to give him our best. He doesn't need it. That's right. Yeah. But he accepts it and he says, okay, but he checks that off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Good. He ultimately gives it back. Yeah, yeah, really. That's the, that's the amazing thing about it. You, you can't ever really just give anything to God because it just comes back to you. But Well, so they give the gift and then what do they do? What you're saying... I think maybe the reason it wasn't mentioned is because of the motive was to buy a favor. It wasn't worship. I, I think when we give something to God, no matter how small of worship He does, it, it's a big deal to God. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Like Christmas present, you know, the little kid, your kid gives you yeah, yeah. You toss aside, but because it really came from them, you know, you, you keep it as opposed to when they're a teenager and they're trying to buy it off. <laughs> no, you can't have the car keys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. So, huh? so maybe, you know, there was a thought of that whether you know, they're trying to be a good with then we don't have to do that. I mean, they're already... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, well, so uh, so then what? What do they do? They bow down. They bow down. Okay. And then they do what again? They bow down again. Okay. Did you notice that they bow down twice? They, they bow down, and then they have this little discussion about the welfare of the family, and then they bow down again. What's the significance of this bowing down? Okay, it's the fulfillment of God's Word. Remember what the psalmist said? Until His Word came to pass, the Word of the Lord tested him. For 22 years... Those dreams have been testing Joseph. For 22 years, Joseph is just living from day to day, clinging to those dreams that God had given to him. And now he's standing there or sitting there before his brothers and his brothers come in. Of course, they're clueless. But his brothers come in and they bow down before him and Joseph is realizing this is the fulfillment of God's Word to me. Now, that of course is not his conclusion the first time they bowed down upon their first visit. Why not? Benjamin wasn't with them. So the... So the dream was not fulfilled when they bowed down the first time. But now they come on the second visit and they bow down. They bow down not just once, but they bow down twice. And this is the fulfillment of God's Word. 
Now, it may, it may have been easy for Joseph after the brothers' first visit and they first came and they bowed down, it may have been easy for Joseph to say, well, that's good enough. You know, I don't need Benjamin to bow down. And I've got all these guys that sold me into slavery and never could speak a good word to me, a kind word to me. Those guys all bowed down, so that's good enough for me. But it wasn't good enough for God. Because when God says something, He keeps it in meticulous detail at every point. <coughs> yes, and he still has the second dream. We're just talking about the first dream here. And I believe that I believe very much so that that Joseph, we talked about last week how Joseph must have expected that his brothers would return in part because he knew the family was going to go on after their first visit for another 6 years and uh so so he was probably fairly confident they were to return but i think joseph had a greater confidence they would return because he simply knew that god had given him a dream that was not yet fulfilled actually two dreams that are not yet fulfilled and so he's expecting eventually his brothers are going to show up again and they're going to show up with benjamin because that's what his dream is and that's god's word to him and so so he's standing there or he's sitting there and his brothers are bowing down before him and he is and he is realizing now that that God's word or God's promise to him that has sustained him for lo these 22 years has been completed has been fulfilled And those are the moments in our lives when we breathe a sigh of relief and we go, man, I'm glad I just kept trusting God. I'm glad I just kept trusting the Lord. I'm glad I didn't give up. I'm glad I didn't think that eventually He was going to forget about it and blow it off. Have you ever, have you ever held on in faith for something for a while and then eventually you just kind of you know the more you held the longer you held on the longer it seemed like it wasn't going to happen and the more it seemed kind of incredible what you were believing for anyway and you know kind of and so you kind of just kind of let it slide and you let the faith slide and then a little later God still did it I've had that happen that's embarrassing (laughs) I don't know any better way to put it it's embarrassing. It's, it's humiliating in a negative way you know, to think, God, I hung on for just I hung on for a while, but then I, I gave up on you. And then when he just he comes through anyway, and you go, and it's a it's a disappointment that I didn't trust God all the way through. Now we've talked about this before about the story of Peter when he walks on the water. Remember. He walks on the water and he, he, he gets out there to the Lord Jesus and he's almost there. And then he looks around at the storm and what happens? He begins to sink. Okay. And the Lord pulls him up out of the water and reprimands him for what? His little faith. Now, excuse me just a minute. This is a guy who by faith just walked on water. Right? He just walked on water. And Jesus says he has little faith. 
And that's always been instructive to me that when the Lord talks about great faith and little faith, the primary measure of what makes my faith great is not the size of the thing I'm believing for, but how long my faith hangs on. That if my faith hangs on only for a while, whether I'm believing Him to move a mountain or if I'm just believing for some little thing, if my faith only holds on for a little while and then gives up before I'm actually right there at the Lord's side, as Peter is trying to be, and I let go of faith, my faith is little. But if, in fact, I hold on and I persevere and I hang on to faith, whether it's a big thing or a little thing I'm believing God for, if I hold on until I get the promise, that's great faith. And what we see with Joseph here is a guy who held on in spite of everything that was going on. He held on and believed until he saw the fulfillment of the promise. Now, there's something else about these brothers bowing down that strikes me. Is uh, they, they come into him and they just, you know, they're bringing the present. And they, so they bring the present and they bow down before him. Okay. Well, to some degree, that's protocol, right? <laughs> that's just, you know, that's what you do when you're coming in before some great king or some great ruler or some great... You come in and, you know, we don't do that anymore, of course, today. But, uh, but in the culture and in the time, that was protocol, okay? And, but, so they just come in and they just bow down before him. And then he interacts with them about the welfare of their family for a little bit and they answer him. And then they bow down again. Now, I, I don't know why they bow down the second time. I don't know if it was out of... It says in, in homage to him, but, but I don't know if it was because they were just overwhelmed by his interest in their family or you know, I don't know what it was but for some reason they bowed down again and what strikes me about this is the ease with which these brothers are bowing down before Joseph because there was a time in their life when they would commit fratricide rather than bow down before this man There was a time when the thought of bowing down before this man was so abhorrent to them, they would rather kill him than ever countenance the thought of bowing down to him. Now, of course, at this point, they don't know yet that this is Joseph. But it is striking to me the ease with which they bow down to this guy. And actually, it turns out it's not such a bad deal after all, is it? It's not the end of their lives. It's not the end of the world. It's really a fairly simple thing. You just bow down and you show this man, whoever he is, you show this man the honor that's due to him and, and you get up and you go on with life. It's not the end of the world. But these guys would rather kill this guy than bow down to him. As I thought about that, I thought about how oftentimes in our lives we, as, as Jesus says to Paul, we kick against the goads. God has things He wants 
to do in our lives or things He wants us to do in our lives. And to us, it's just such a... Because of our pride and because of our fear, they're just things we just... I will never do that. I will never do that. My dad used to joke. He said, he said, I quit saying I will never live in such and such a place. Because he says, every time I said that, God moved me there. <laughs> That's why he ended up in Nebraska. <laughs> but uh, but we, we have things in our life that for some reason, because of our stubbornness or because of our pride or because of our fear, we just go, I'm never going there. I'm not going to do that. And it causes in our lives, because sometimes those things that we say I will never do are the very things that God is calling us to do, are the very things we need to do in order to, if you will, just to survive spiritually. And and yet, for some reason, they're so abhorrent to us, we just are just sworn we will do anything to keep from ever having to do that. And then God has to lead us through this process of breaking and humbling and crushing us until we finally get to the place where by hook or by crook we finally yield and we finally do it. And we go, oh, well, that wasn't so bad. I was thinking about that this morning as I was in the shower and I was thinking of it. Uh, there was something in, in my own life that it was, uh, I can't go into the details of it, uh, but it was just something in my own life uh, a number of years ago where I just went, uh, never doing that, never doing that. It would involve too much humility and too much putting myself in a position of vulnerability. And, I'm, you know, uh, I saw other people do it. And I saw other people benefit from doing it. And I just thought, well, that's good for them, but it doesn't work for me. And uh, and this went on for about ten years. And but over a period of years, finally I went, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe. And finally, I just bit the bullet. Finally, I just said, okay, God, I'm going to give this a try. And uh, it was a, a fairly long, drawn-out thing that He wanted me to do. And 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 I remember the first evening that I began to do this thing and I went, okay, this is a mistake. <laughs> you know, I was just I was just scared and I was proud. But as I went forward in it, eventually it just became a source of great blessing in my life. <laughs> and and I just think about these brothers who fought against this so hard and they caused so much grief to themselves and they caused so much grief to Joseph and they caused so much grief to their father. So much sorrow and so much bitterness that was the result of them just simply fighting against God. And, I, and I, as I thought about that this morning, I was thinking... How many times we do that, there's maybe someone God wants us to submit to. Or, or some situation that God wants us to just willingly give ourselves to and be vulnerable in. Now, I don't know what it is. You're, you're going to have to make the application in your own experience. I don't know what it is. But you know how it is that we oftentimes kick against those things. And we fight against those things. 
And the, and the, the thing I see here in the lives of these ten guys is when it finally came, push came to shove and they finally had to do it, it really wasn't all that big of a deal after all. And I thought, why were they fighting so hard? Now, uh, admittedly, they still don't know who it is, but I think once they find out who it is, they're not going to be chagrined or embarrassed if they bowed down to him. They're just going to realize, well, that's just the way it had to be if we were going to survive. And in, in my life, May God grant me the grace to just quit kicking against the goads and fighting against those things that He's prodding me to do. Because when it finally is all said and done, it ain't going to be so bad. And ultimately, it's going to be really good. Well, so the brothers bow down. They bow down twice, but in the interim there, Joseph asks them about their father. And he says, how is that old father of yours? You know, how's he doing? And uh, is he well? That's the word shalom again that we talked about last week. has that idea of peace to it as well as the idea of well-being and that sort of thing. And how's your father? Is he well? Is he shalom? Does he have peace? And what do the brothers say? He's alive and he's well. Uh, yeah, he calls, yeah, they call him your servant, which is actually kind of the dawning of the fulfillment of the second dream, right? <laughs> so it's going to be a while before Jacob actually gets there, but it's the beginning of the fulfillment of the second dream. But, but they say he is well. And when I read that, I go, oh, really? Superficially, outwardly, Jacob looks well. He's rich. <laughs> Powerful guy living in Canaan. Very rich. Very influential. Got a bunch of, got a bunch of boys. You know, got a bunch of boys. They've grown to men. They've gotten married. They've got, he's got a slew of grandchildren by now. On the outside, on the, from the external viewpoint, Jacob's doing well. He's old. He's lived a long life. He's doing well. But I had to ask myself, if, Joseph, if Jacob were here when that question was asked, how would he have answered it? And we get a clue to that later in the narrative when Joseph, or excuse me, when Pharaoh asked Jacob about his life and Jacob gives an assessment that is not what the brothers give here. We'll get to that later in our studies, but uh, I don't want don't to kind of spill the beans here. But, but when we think about this guy, Jacob, this is a guy who's lost his beloved wife. He's lost his favorite son. He has ten other sons, nine of, or, uh, or has eleven other sons, ten of whom are pretty much of a disappointment. They pretty much let him down, and they caused him a bunch of trouble. And now his other favorite son, Benjamin, is off on some perilous journey to Egypt. This is a guy who in his life has known a lot of sorrow and a lot of bitterness and a lot of suffering, even a lot of mistreatment. And he hadn't always handled it well. 
And I'm struck by the fact that as his sons look on him, they say, oh yeah, dad's doing okay. But dad really isn't doing okay. Dad's hurting. And, and it strikes me that they, that they are so unaware of how much dad hurts. And I, I, my mind went to the verse in, in Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 14, where he says, uh, the heart knows its own bitterness and a stranger does not share its joy. You see, the reality is we have husbands, we have wives, we have close friends, we have people around us that know us and they know what we're going through. But really, when it comes down to it, only your heart knows its own bitterness. People look on you from the outside and they see you from the outside and they may even know some of the things you've gone through. But ultimately, as Proverbs says, the heart knows its own bitterness and a stranger does not share its joy. There is a degree to which the things you go through in life, no matter how close you are to others, the things you go through in life are yours. Now, by God's grace, oftentimes we have friends or family or husbands or wives around us that, that have some understanding and some appreciation for the things that we're wrestling with and the things that we're struggling with. But ultimately, nobody knows your bitterness but you. And really, nobody knows your joy but you. Have you ever really experienced something just really cool and wonderful, you know, and you're just really pumped about it? And, and you talk to other people about it and, and, and they rejoice with you and they go, but you know they don't really get it. I mean, you know, they don't really get it. I mean, could you really get it last week after OSU won? And, you know, could you really rejoice with Randy Presley? You know, could you really rejoice with him? You know, I mean, you were kind of glad for him. Well, maybe you were. I don't know. But, could you know. And the heart knows its own joy. A stranger cannot know it. And there's a, level, there's a level and there's an extent to which only God knows the bitterness of our own hearts. And I think He intends it that way. I think He intends it that way so that we will never ultimately rely on the arm of flesh. That we will realize that with those things, those deep, painful things in our hearts that we struggle with. He gives us friends. He gives us loved ones to help us and support us. But ultimately, He wants us to come to Him. And He wants us to understand that He knows and He feels it and that He really can identify. Well, there's that side of it, but then there's the other side of it, which is God does have a mechanism by which He helps us understand one another's grief. He does have a mechanism by which He helps us to identify with another person's bitterness. And that mechanism is what? Suffering. That when I suffer, 
then I go, okay, now I know what this feels like. And so when I'm rubbing shoulders with somebody else who is suffering, although I cannot fully understand their bitterness, I am much more able to relate to it and identify with it than had I not suffered. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, I went through these things and I experienced the comfort of God so that I could comfort you. And so these brothers here, you know, I'm sure they were... Yeah, go ahead. I think that's one reason why one of the God's principles is we translate it as what goes around coming it's not to kind of see that shows you, but that's so that you can walk a mile in their shoes. Yeah. 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 Good point. Good point. Well, uh, so, uh, so then they bow down again, and then Joseph kind of focuses in on Benjamin there. And he sees Benjamin, and he, you know, and again, like I said last week, I don't know how he knew that it was Benjamin. You know, I don't know if he saw his mother in Benjamin. I don't know what it was, but he sees him and he kind of asks a rhetorical question there. He says, so this is the younger brother of whom you spoke. He doesn't apparently wait for an answer. And then he goes on and he says, God, be gracious to you, my son. And I, I'm struck by that blessing that Joseph gives to Benjamin because I think to some degree Joseph is doing just what we've talked about here. He knows what it means. He knows what it's like to be a favored son in that family. And he knows this guy needs God's grace. And so he gives him this benediction or this blessing. He says, God, be gracious to you, my son. And then he is just overwhelmed. It's one of those poignant times in Scripture, one of those most poignant stories in scripture and Joseph is just overwhelmed with emotion and he has to literally just get out of the room before he blows his whole cover and he has to get out of the room and he goes and says he's looking for a place you know, the guy's desperate he's looking for a place to weep you know because he can't hold it in any longer and he gets to his bedchamber and he goes into his bedchamber and he just lets it all out all the tears and all the emotion of 22 years. More than that, actually. And he just lets it all out for a few minutes or however long. We don't know how long. And then he washes his face and composes himself and he goes back in and he says, let's eat. You know, and he's, he's back, in, back in character again. Okay? <clears throat> so they go back in and they, and they arrange the tables and they have everybody seated and, and it makes the point that Joseph sits by himself and the Egyptians sit over here and the brother, the Hebrew brothers sit over here. And it makes the point that they do that, particularly the Egyptians, Hebrews being separated, is because the Hebrews are loathsome to the Egyptians. And we're reminded of the thing that we learned in chapter 38. Why Egypt? Remember that lesson? Why Egypt? Why was it necessary for Israel to go down to Egypt for 400 years and be slaves in Egypt for 400 years? Because they had begun being assimilated and the Canaanite people coming. Because the Canaanites didn't loathe them. The Canaanites wanted to intermarry with them. The Canaanites wanted to intermingle with them. And that's what we saw starting to happen in chapter 38 and that whole story of Judah and Tamar and Judah's friend. And, you know, that... 
what we see is they're starting to assimilate. And if God is going to preserve Israel to be a nation holy and separate unto himself, he's got to get them out of Canaan and he's got to get them to somewhere where people hate them. And so he sends them to Egypt. Yeah. At this time, there's this Hebrews are lost. I mean, who are the Hebrews? Are these guys, or we know, are the only Hebrews? So how do you get from even though they were? I think the term is used in a wider sense. Uh, that's the sense that I get, or the feeling I get. The term is used in a wider sense, and it has it apparently has to do with the fact that the Hebrews and also other people from Canaan would eat cows, which the Egyptians would not eat. Uh, because they were a sacred animal. And so there was this, this you know, kind of like we see between the Jews and Gentiles later in redemptive history. Uh, well, the language was probably part of the issue, uh, but a lot of it was this spiritual, religious, you know, their religion is different and they, they eat cows and we think cows are sacred and... And so, uh, and and then when we get to the story of them actually settling in Egypt, they have to actually settle in a region by themselves because because the, the they they don't like shepherds and you know that whole sort of thing. So there's a lot of stuff going on there, and I don't know all the issues that are going on. It's kind of like you're talking about a lot of you know, Joseph's interpreter spoke Hebrew, and I thought, well, he was a Hebrew slave. Yeah, 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 that's not that's not all real clear to us. And I don't have an answer for that. Uh, so so then he arranges the brothers to seat to be seated according to their age. And this just blows their mind. <laughs> so they look at one another in astonishment. You know, at this point, I'm going, Joseph, what are you doing? You're blowing your cover here. <laughs> you know, why are you doing this? And I'm going, Lord, why did he do this? Why did he arrange the brothers according to their age? Well, most commentators assume, and it's really stated in the text, but the commentators I read all tended to assume that the brother's reaction to it was, this guy's got some kind of divine revelation. Yeah, this is, that, that probably the reaction of the brothers was, this guy's got some inside track with God, and God has told him what our birth order is, and he's set us according to our birth order. Now, that would be, if you were in their position, a little unsettling. A little unsettling. <laughs> well, except by this time, they're being treated like royalty. Yeah, but see, wouldn't you be suspicious even at that point? I'm, I'm suspicious of everything at this point. The most powerful man in the world. We just came here for food. We're not really anybody. And he's invited us to his house. He didn't invite everybody. I mean, I would be real nervous. Well, you would think so. And I don't know exactly how the brothers responded, but I keep asking myself, why did Joseph do this? And I cannot help but conclude that Joseph's trying to tell them something. Joseph's trying to say something to them without revealing everything at this point. I think what Joseph is trying to say to them is, hey guys, something bigger is going on here than you realize. 
Well, I asked. In fact, I have that in my notes here. Is he just toying with them? And I don't think he is, because I don't think that's Joseph. I don't see anything in Joseph that hints that he would treat his brothers like that. So I don't think he's just playing with them. But that's a legitimate question. Is he just toying with them? I don't think he is. I think, I think he's trying to send them a message. And he's trying to say, guys, however you interpret these events that are happening, you better realize something bigger is going on here than you know about. And in, well, yes, yeah, and that's pretty scary. Uh, but if, in fact, what he's trying to say to them is, guys, there's something bigger here going on than you realize, or than that you may realize, then, in fact, that's exactly what the conclusion that Judah reaches when things turn sour with that deal with the cup in Benjamin's sack. And Judah goes, okay, this is bigger than us coming down to Egypt to buy grain. So I think it's simply Joseph is saying to his brothers, don't just slide through this feast here and just think, you know, this is just some strange incident in life. There's something providential happening here in our lives and you need to be alert to that. And so then they have this feast and it says they, they feasted and they drank freely. And the word there, drank freely, actually literally means we're drunk. We're inebriated. Now, what's interesting to me, that's the literal translation of the word, but what's interesting to me is every commentator I read was loath to say that these guys got drunk. Uh, every commentator I read says, well, they probably weren't actually drunk. And maybe they weren't. But I think we can conclude But by the end of this meal, they were all feeling pretty good. And here they are, they're feasting and they're drinking and all this stuff is going on. And Joseph is sitting here with his brothers and they're all laughing together and they're all having a great time. And they're eating, eating up a storm as much as they could possibly want to eat. Benjamin's getting five times as much as everybody else. And they're having all the drink they want and they're all loose and they're having a good time. And I'm thinking Joseph is sitting there going, man, why couldn't we have this 30 years ago? Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's what's going on. And by the brothers being loosened up a little bit by plenty of wine, their their inhibitions are reduced. And I think Joseph is plying them a little bit to see are they going to be jealous of Benjamin? And I do think that's going on. But I keep thinking we learned in chapter 37 early in chapter 37, it says his brothers could not speak kindly to him. And now here they are all sitting around having a big feast. Of course, they don't know who he is yet, but they're all sitting around having a big feast here together and having a good time. And I'm just thinking, what's going on in Joseph's mind and Joseph's heart? Well, we're way past overtime, so uh, we'll pick it up next week. This was about the end.